I don't know about you, but I, I love that video. And actually, that video was made by, um, I'm not even sure how, Brendan, how old Brendan is. Brendan's 19, 20 years old. He's, a, he's an intern on our staff. Son of Lisa Schmidt, who directs children's ministry here. Um, Brendan uh, made that video. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you'd think that was like Hollywood stuff. Um, and that video introduces what, what I've already said is a really powerful series where we're looking back over the course of time to look at how God told the story of Christmas or gave commentary on the story of Christmas in advance. And so by looking back, we'll discover greater richness to this story that we all know pretty well. So let's pray as we dive in. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for allowing us to, uh, to be on this side of your story where we can see it in all of its glory and all of its mastery and that we can see Christ and worship Christ and, and know the fullness that he brings into our lives personally. God, we thank you for that. But Father, today I pray that you might take us deeper, that you might help us see other dimensions to Christ that we've never seen before through things that you did long before Christ. So God, open up our hearts and our minds to receive this. God, um, help, help me to, uh, to, to teach this accurately. But God, also, God, I, th- this, is, this, is, uh, this is Bible stuff. This is informational stuff. But God, I pray that by this, that you would deepen our faith and trust in you, that you would transform us, that your spirit would be active in this room. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so I've got a bit of a, uh, a puzzler for you this morning. Uh, I want to ask you this. So what do the following people have in common? What do... Julia Louis-Dreyfus, remember her from Seinfeld, um, Donald Trump Jr., Sam Branson, Paris Hilton, and Jesus have in common. <laughs> Go ahead, turn to your neighbor and, and tell them what you think that the answer might be. <laughs> yeah. Anyone have a good guess? Did anyone say absolutely nothing? I hope you didn't say they're all a good in a swimsuit or anything like that. Um, uh, no, the answer is, is really almost, almost nothing, except for the fact that they are all famous heirs. Uh, Julie, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I, I didn't know this about her. She's a famous actress, of course. Uh, but she is the heiress to the Louis-Dreyfus Group, one of the world's biggest commodity trading uh, firms. Donald Trump Jr., you know what he's the heir to, right? Along with his brother Eric and his sister Ivanka. Sam Branson is the son of Sir Richard Branson. Does anyone know who he is? Virgin. Yeah, Virgin Air and Virgin Records and Virgin Mobile and the whole Virgin Empire. Um, Paris Hilton is the, the granddaughter of Conrad Hilton, the hotel, uh, the hotel um, guy, Conrad Hilton. And then Jesus. Well, I, th- I think you know something about him, right? All famous heirs. Now, now most of the time, I, I think when we think about Jesus, especially when we think about Jesus at Christmas, we don't think of him in terms of being an heir. And for us today, you know, even the list I mentioned, being an heir probably doesn't always have the most positive connotation. You might think of people who are spoiled, people of privilege, people who live wild lives, maybe corrupt lives. And so Jesus doesn't exactly fit into that category but, but today we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus being an heir is a very, very good thing. See, I think most of us are too comfortable with thinking of Jesus only as our Lord, only as our Savior. You know, we think, isn't that good enough that Jesus is our Lord and Savior? Isn't that enough for us to consider him in that way? And, and I suppose so. I mean, that is good. But if you only think of Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you miss out on the fullness of who Jesus is. 
Because he is so much more than just your Lord and just your Savior. And that's what the series prequel is really all about. If you've been kind of scratching your head wondering what this is all about, and it feels different, it's maybe a little more intellectual, a little more theological than normal, maybe a little more, uh, a little less rather easily life applicable for you. If you've been wondering what this series is all about, first and foremost, it's about understanding that Jesus is the pinnacle of all of time, that Jesus is the center of all of history, that it's not as if God was sitting around in the Old Testament twiddling his thumbs or that God was, was throwing things up against the wall to see what would stick, trying to figure out how he could save the world. And then eventually he thought of this idea, oh, oh, maybe I could send my son. Maybe that would work. It's not even as if God throughout time painted himself into a corner and did all of this stuff and then he had to find a way to fulfill it all, you know, made these promises without a clear end in mind. No, no, God began time with Jesus in mind. And it says so in the first book of the Bible. It says so in the very last book of the Bible. I want to show you Genesis 3 first. God is speaking. This is moments after Adam and Eve fall into sin, and he's speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity, I'll put animosity or hostility between you, serpent, the, you know, the forces of evil, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He, her offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, in the first moments of human history, right after we had fallen into sin, God had already said, he had already told us that Christ would come, born of a woman, born of Eve, and that he would crush the head of evil. Isn't that powerful? See, this is not an afterthought. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 13, it describes Jesus in this way. It says, Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That God envisioned Jesus crucified from the creation, from the foundation of the world. So so the first part of this series prequel is all about that. It's, it's, It's recognizing that Jesus is the center of history. And everything that leads up in history, everything that leads up in scripture is pointing to Jesus. It's not an afterthought. You can think of the stuff that came before it really as as afterthoughts. God had Jesus in mind first, and everything else God crafted and and formed to point to Jesus. That's kind of the first part of what this series is all about. But but the second part of this series is is beginning to see Jesus in a fuller way, as I've already mentioned. To to see Jesus' coming and his work and his life in a more multifaceted way, to to begin to worship Jesus as more than just a Lord or more than just a Savior. So today we're going to do that, and we're going to learn about how Jesus is the promised heir of all of time. And and more than that, we're going to learn why that matters for us. So so let's talk a little bit about heirs. Now, uh, we still use the, the, uh, you know, the idea of heirs today. I mean, I talked to you about some famous heirs and heiresses, A lot of us in this room might have a will actually designating who our heirs will be. Uh, My wife and I, we decided that not to have a will, just out of laziness, not for any other reason. But, um, and actually we think it's going to be kind of fun just to, you know, sit in heaven and watch everyone fight it out over our stuff. We're going to get a lot of pleasure out of that. So uh, we're just going to ride that out for a little longer. But a lot of you have made plans. You've designated heirs. You realize it's important. But in the ancient world, designating an heir or having an heir was even more important. I'll tell you why, and you might want to take notes on these things. Uh, first, in the old world, in the ancient world, an heir had to be male and was often the firstborn. 
Now, um, that may seem unfair to you. Uh, it's interesting, as I was looking at, at the list, the top 25 list of some of the most famous heirs and heiresses today, most of them, probably three-quarters of them are women, which is very interesting. But back in the ancient world, uh, an heir had to be male and was often the firstborn, but not always. Um, more importantly, the heir, just like today, was the one who would receive the family property. Now, um, this, this sounds just like, you know, a, a right or a, a privilege, but it really is a responsibility um, because Fortunes would be divided up amongst all the, mayor, all, all the male um, heirs, but the, the true heir would get a double portion of the property, and it was their job to steward it, to take care of it. I mean, if you've ever taken over a family business or a family farm or, or anything like that, you, you know the weight that you feel of continuing a family legacy. It's a huge responsibility, and that was the responsibility that an heir carried. An heir served as caretaker for their family. They were really charged to be the lead caretaker. So that meant taking care of a widowed mother. That meant taking care of unmarried sisters. Because in the ancient world, women couldn't own property. That might even mean serving as, as what the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer. Uh, so if one of your relatives got into financial trouble and had to sell themselves into economic slavery, indentured servanthood, if you were the heir, it was kind of your responsibility if you had the means to go and buy back your relative out of slavery to buy their freedom. A huge responsibility. And then last, they acted as the official business representative of their family. Even while their, while their parents were still living, the heir could conduct business just as if the, the father himself, it, it would count. I mean, he was, he was fully legal to do business on behalf of the family. Now, if you look at this list, maybe you already are beginning to see some of the ways that Jesus is our heir and why that matters. But we're going to talk about that more later. But, but here's what I find fascinating. I find fascinating that God wanted us to understand this facet of Jesus' life in ministry and personhood so much that before Jesus came, about 2,000 years before Jesus came, he orchestrated this great prequel story that we're going to look at today. A story about a man who is waiting for an heir. It starts in Genesis chapter 17, so if you want to open up a Bible or take out your smartphone and go to uversion.com, you're welcome to do that. Um, the words will also be up here on the big giant screen behind me. Um, Genesis chapter 17. 2,000 years before Jesus, we're going to look at a guy named Abram who's whose name gets changed in these verses to Abraham. You've probably heard of him. And we're going to look at how God did something in his family by providing an heir, which, which shows us about what God would do 2,000 years later in Jesus. So let's dive in. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Now, if, if any of you are like 80s contemporary Christian music lovers, you might know of a woman named Amy Grant. And uh, you know she had a, a song, El Shaddai. Remember that song? Maybe even sing that in church. Uh, it's a really hard song to sing, actually. A lot of Hebrew stuff. Um, El Shaddai. The reason I got that highlighted is, is right there in Hebrew, the word there, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's, that's the Hebrew phrase. That's part of the place. It's one of the places where it comes from. So I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Some of you act like you don't listen to Amy Grant still. Like you're just acting like, I know you. You're rocking it out on the way home from church today. Um, so God says, I am I'm God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you. And a covenant's a relationship promise, or a relationship more than a contract. It's really this it's covenant's stronger language. So I'll make this promise between me and you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. Now God is speaking to, to this man who's, who, who doesn't have an heir. 
And yet he's saying, I'll greatly increase your numbers. So Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, Abram, this is my covenant with you. This is what I will do for you. You will become the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father, but you will be called Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make whole nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you're now living as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will also be their God. So, so God's talking about this incredible legacy, and, and then he goes on in the next verses, and he begins to talk about Abraham's end of the covenant. God says, I'm going to do all this for you, and Abraham, what I want from you is I want you to follow me blamelessly, and I want you to make sure that every male in your household is circumcised. And if you don't mind, I'm going to skip over those verses, because I just don't think you need a lesson on circumcision for me today, okay? If you feel like it's something you need to learn about, thank God for the internet. I'm not going to talk about it today. Uh, but before I move on, let me just correct something that I said earlier. I mentioned that Abraham is a guy who doesn't have an heir, and that's not exactly true. Abraham, as God is appearing to him in, in, this, uh, in these verses, he actually does have an heir. He has a 13-year-old son by the name of, does anyone know? Ishmael. Ishmael. Now, now the problem with Ishmael is, is Abraham loves him. He is his son. But Ishmael is not the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Ishmael is the son of a second wife, a concubine, that Abram, uh, Abraham took on at a point in his life because he got tired of waiting for God. God made a promise that he'd have an heir and it wasn't happening. And so Abraham and Sarah designed this contingency plan where they said, hey, if it's not happening through Sarah, maybe God means for it to happen some other way. And so Abram, Abraham has an heir named Ishmael, but Sarah doesn't. And so Abram, who had long given up this, this, this uh, idea of God ever giving him a a child through his wife, the wife that he's been married to for a long time, the wife that he loves. He's now hearing these words of God, and, and you can bet one thing, he's picturing Ishmael as God talks about descendants and nations and kings. He's, he's imagining that God will do all of this through his son, the son who's 13 years old at the time. But, but God continues and kind of rocks everything. This is what God says. God also said to Abraham, and as for your, your wife Sarai, you are no longer to call her Sarai, which means something like my princess. Her name will be Sarah, which will mean princess of many or something similar. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. And I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Well, this is great news, right? I mean, after all these years of waiting, they're finally going to have a child. Not exactly. See, if this news would have come 14 years before with such specificity, it probably would have been great news. If it would have come 60 years before, it would have been really great news. But the truth is, this news makes things really, really messy. Because I already told you, Abram, Abraham, he already has a son. A son whom he loves. A son who is 13 years old. He's, he's right on the verge of adulthood, of becoming a full-fledged heir of the family. And now God's saying, no, no, no. I've got something else in mind. So you better believe that Abraham and Sarah had already made peace with their situation. 
And some of you understand what this feels like. You may dream about something. You may long for something so badly, and, and, and it just doesn't happen for you. And eventually, the heartache kind of goes away, or, or you allow yourself to get numb, and you just kind of put those dreams away. They become dreams deferred, as, as the poem says. And just the idea that God now is, is opening up this old wound. I mean, Abraham and Sarah had made peace with the fact that they were not having children. And now God says, oh no, you will. You will have a son by Sarah, your wife. And this, this really just messes everything up. How is, how is Abraham supposed to put his son Ishmael aside in place of another son? So this is what Abraham does. It says, Abraham fell face down and he laughed. And he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? You just can't believe it's true. It's been too long. And Abraham said to God, God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Now, this is a powerful statement. I mean, Abraham's just crying out saying, God, you know, don't play with us. Don't mess with us. Don't mess this up. We're, we're getting along fine now. Can you just bless Ishmael? Can you do all of that stuff? Not through some other child, but can you just fulfill your promise through Ishmael instead? But God's answer is, is going to be no, which may confuse us. I mean, why couldn't God just bless Ishmael? Well, there are a whole host of reasons. For starters, God had a plan to bless Abraham and Sarah with what they desired most. And even though that dream had been deferred, it still lived inside of them, and God wanted to give them the desire of their heart. It's just something that was in God to want to do. He wanted to give them a child together. And so even though they had dreamed up this plan B, God couldn't just bless their plan B. God wanted to bless them with something greater. Not only that, but God had a plan to include Sarah. See, I mean, this is all great, this contingency plan. Abraham gets a son. They have an heir. But Sarah is just kind of excluded from all of this. But, but see, God, even though women are of low standing in society in the Old Testament, not to God, they're not of low standing. See, God loves Sarah, and he wants to honor her. He wants to bless her with being a part of this great promise. Too. It's not just about Abraham. It's also about Sarah. And so God can't bless their plan B because he wants to use Sarah as a part of this great promise being fulfilled. And then last, God has a plan in all of this to reserve credit for himself. You know, if, if God were just to bless their plan B, I guess um, Abraham and Sarah could pat themselves on the back for, for helping God out, you know, when God needed help. But God was going to do this in such a way that no one else could claim credit for what he was about to do. Now, that may make you feel like God is kind of, I don't know, I hear that sometimes, and I'm like, is God really that egocentric? That he needs credit? No, that's not it at all. That's, that's not the reason God wants to reserve credit for himself. The reason God wants to reserve credit for himself is because first and foremost, God is a blesser. He is a giver. That's who he is. And God, just like you and I, he wants to be known for who he really is, not who people think he is. And so God is going to do something in such a way that everyone will know that he is a giver. He is a blesser first and foremost, because he wants the world to know him as he truly is. So although Abraham makes this, this, Abraham makes this passionate plea, he says, God, don't mess up our lives now. We're getting along fine. Just bless Ishmael. God says, no, no, no. I've got a bigger plan here. And this is what God says, verse 19. God says, okay. All right, Abraham. 
Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, which means uh, he laughs, because that's what both Abraham and Sarah do when they hear this news. And I will establish my covenant, my relationship promise with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Uh, and then he goes on and he says this verse, uh, uh, verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. See, God says, I've got enough blessing to go around. I'm not, I'm not going to exclude Ishmael from my blessing, but I'm still going to work out my plans for the world in a different way. He says, I'll make Ishmael fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, this promised heir, whom Sarah will bear you by, the time, by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So God leaves and he makes this promise and he says, within a year, within a year, you're going to have a child. That puts Abraham at age 100 and Sarah at age 90. It seems absolutely impossible that these two people who are so past childbearing years would be able to have a child. And yet, within a year, it happens. Isaac is born. This promised heir is given. The line of God is continued uh, through him. The line of Israel, the line that even the Messiah will come from, is continued through him. But still, if, if you're like me, you're, you're kind of still like, why is this necessary? Why does this matter? Why did God have to work things out in this way? Well, well I already gave you three reasons. You know, that God had a plan to do all this stuff. And I just want you to know that, that God is the same and that he still works out his plans in these kinds of ways. I mean, God has a desire to bless you with what your heart desires most. That doesn't mean it's always going to happen. Sometimes, sometimes the dreams that you dream, there's actually a dream behind the dream. Do you know that? Uh, sometimes I think the reason God doesn't give us our dreams is because the dream isn't really the thing. There's a dream behind the dream that, that is really the thing. We, we just don't know it yet. And sometimes it's only when God says no to the dream that we discover the dream behind the dream, the thing that our hearts are really longing for. And I still believe that God is a blesser. He's a giver first and foremost, and you should believe it too. And that he wants to give you what your heart desires most, even if it's the dream behind the dream. The same thing is true with, with uh, including Sarah. God wants to include us in his plans. He wants to involve us in his work in the world. And God wants to reserve credit for himself. He wants all of us in this room to know who he is. That before being God the just, he is God the merciful. He is God the gracious. He is God the blesser. That is who he is. But see, in addition to all of that, God was teaching Abraham and Sarah and all the rest of us three other things. Really quickly, I want to go over these, and I'm, I'm sure you want to write these down. See, in all this, God had a plan to show that he uses the unexpected to accomplish his work. It would just make sense that God would use the son who's already alive and 13 years old on the verge of adulthood to carry out his relationship promise, his promise of a covenant. But God is just unexpected in how he chooses to work. He's consistent in who he is, and yet in his methods and his means, he's so unexpected. And, and if you're someone who likes consistency and regularity and tradition, this will frustrate you. But it also should fill you with a sense of awe and wonder and joy because that means that God will use people like us to accomplish his work. I mean, look at yourself, people. You may have a lot of good attributes, but surely if, if God were going around the planet picking the best people for his work— I'm not sure that he would pick many of us in this room. I at least can say that of myself in all truthfulness. 
And yet because this is true, because God uses the unexpected to accomplish his work, that means he uses people like us. God wanted Abraham and Sarah to see that through this crazy plan he dreamed up by providing an heir, and he wanted us to see it as well. Uh, Really, the second or the fifth point in this list is that God wanted to do this to show that he doesn't abandon us in our mistakes. Right? So Abraham and Sarah, they, they, they dream up this plan B, and it makes a mess of things. And as you know, Ishmael becomes the father of the whole nation of Islam, and Islam claims him as their father. And, and still in the Middle East, there's, there's war going on between Jews and, um, and Muslims and Christians. And so there's this whole mess that's created. But God wanted to demonstrate to Abraham and Sarah that in their running ahead of him, in their meddling with his plans, he was not going to abandon them. Now tell me you haven't felt that before in your life, that, that you have stepped outside of the lines, you have run ahead of God, you have meddled with something that God was doing in your life, you've messed something up, and tell me that you haven't felt j- just that worry, that concern, that dread that says, maybe I'm done. Maybe I'm cut off. Maybe I just crossed the line and God is done with me and he's not going to abandon me. See, the reason I think God does this to Abraham and Sarah is to show them that they're meddling doesn't mean that he's going to walk away. He's not going to step away from them. One of my pet peeves, really, is this uh, theological idea that, that we're told all the time. And it's this idea that God is a holy God and he can't be around sinners. That's not true. In fact, that, that's heresy. That, that has its roots in Platonism and Gnosticism, that, that a holy God can't be around sinful things. God can be around whatever he wants. A holy God took on sinful flesh and conquered it. A holy God touches sinful things and he makes sinful things holy. And see, this whole idea gets into our heads and our hearts and our minds that says, if we mess up too much, maybe God just has to back off because he can't contend with sinful, messed up, broken people like us. But I love that through Abraham and Sarah, God shows us that he will not abandon us even in our mistakes. And then last and most important, through all of this, God was showing us, do you get this? God was showing us what he would do 2,000 years later in Jesus. See, see, I believe this whole story is, is a parallel. It is a story planted in time to get us ready. And, and it's a true story. It's God did it in real time. But it's, it's a story that God planted in time to get us ready to understand Jesus in a fuller way. To understand, as, as I've said, that, that first and foremost, God wanted to provide an heir for us as people. And he, and he wanted to bless us with what we needed most through Jesus. So, so just in the same way that, that Isaac was this, this gift that Abraham and Sarah needed most or desired most, the dream that they had most, in the same way God wanted, uh, wants us to understand that, that the provision of Jesus, this heir who was promised back in Genesis 3, is truly what we need most. Not only that, but God wanted to show us that, that he was okay with involving people like Mary and Joseph, that in his plan he was willing to he was willing to involve our human flesh even, that the air of heaven would take on human flesh. God was involving us, bringing our humanity into the picture of our salvation. God was showing the world that 2,000 years later, he would again reserve credit for himself, that the way he would save the world would be so miraculous that no human being would ever be able to claim credit for it or to think they were worthy of it, that it would come from God and God alone. God was showing us that 2,000 years later through Jesus, 
he would again use the unexpected to accomplish his work. I mean, Mary and Joseph, are you kidding me? A baby born amongst animals? So unexpected. And for most people, that, that would be enough. I mean, it was back in the day. This, this guy can't be the Messiah. He can't be the, the heir. He can't be the promised one of God. And if they study Abraham and Sarah, they'd realize that God loves to use the unexpected to accomplish his work. I believe 2,000 years before Jesus came, God was teaching us this lesson so we wouldn't miss it when Jesus came. And of course, God was showing us 2,000 years beforehand that he does not abandon us in our mistakes. I mean, Jesus came into the most, one of the most just corrupt, broken times in all of the world. And that's how God loves to work. Brokenness doesn't scare him off. But he comes when we cry out the most, when situations are the worst. Those are the situations God loves to invade. He does not abandon us in our mistakes. Do you see? 2,000 years before Jesus, God was telling the story of Isaac and Abraham and Sarah, and he was trying to get us to understand what it means that Jesus is our heir. The same lessons apply to us today. And this is where this whole prequel concept comes in again. I think God wants you, and, I, and for me as a pastor, I want you to understand Jesus not only as your Lord, not only as your Savior. I want you to understand what it means that Jesus is the heir, the great heir of heaven who is joined to humanity. And remember, remember at the very beginning, I, I told you this, that this is what an heir does. And, and now maybe you're ready to see it, that okay, an heir had to be male, Jesus male, okay, we'll set that one aside. Um, but an heir received the family property. Do you realize that, that Jesus coming into the world, that he became the heir of all of earth and all of heaven, that all of that belongs to him now? And it's not just his right or privilege, it is his responsibility. He is using that, he is reigning over all of that for us. Because he's not just the heir of God, but he's the heir of humanity joined in one. And so Jesus, who is the king over all, he governs over all of that with kindness and mercy and goodness for our benefit. When, you, when you're looking around the world and, and you just don't know what's going on in politics and you're disgusted and you're frustrated, remember that Jesus, the heir, is reigning over everything. And he is ultimately sovereign. He is ultimately powerful. Not only that, but he's our caretaker. He's our provider. He's the one who cares for widows and orphans. And he's our kinsman redeemer. You see, he's the one that, that God has charged to buy us back when we were in slavery to sin and death. That he is the one who bears the responsibility. It's, it's not just a privilege for him. It's a responsibility to, to claim us out of our slavery, to purchase and win us through suffering and death. And do you see that Jesus being our heir, that means that he acts as the official business representative of the Father. That means when Jesus acts, it is as good as if the Father does it himself. So Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Truly, Jesus says, because I'm the heir, I've got all authority and power. This is important for us to know that, that when Jesus says you're forgiven— this is not Jesus pitting himself against the Father, that Jesus acts in the full power and authority of the Father. The promises that Jesus has given are the promises of the Father, and they can be claimed and believed because he acts with full authority. You see it? Jesus 
the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, has been born in human flesh. And he's not only the heir of heaven, he's the heir of humanity, bringing all of this together so that we now have one like this who is on our side. I invite you to pray with me as we just worship God for this incredible gift. God, we thank you so much. We praise you for Jesus, for providing one such as him, not just our Lord to be worshiped, not just our Savior, but but our heir, the one who is advocating for us, the one who is caring for us and providing for us and, and buying us back from slavery. God, thank you for providing Jesus as, uh, as so much more than we could ever dream. God, I just pray that throughout this season, God, I pray that you would enable us to see Jesus' work more fully, that we'd see beyond the cliches, that we'd see beyond our, our normal way of looking at this story, and that we would see the facets and the color and the depth and the richness of all that Jesus has done from us, for us, rather. Father, I, I pray that you would uh, just inspire us with a heart of worship and love and service back to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.